Okay, th uh, thanks for that. Um, Okay, my title of the talk is The Art of Snail Snails in Art and the Art of Snails. And what I hope I can persuade you is that it is, in fact, possible to join science and art together, um, and each field may be able to learn something from the other. Um, uh, the, I was, uh, my next book, as uh, you just heard, is called The Serpent's Promise. It's not out yet. Um, but the last one, but three or four, is this thing here. Still on sale, six, seven ninety-nine, all good bookshops. Um, and um, it's called The Single Helix. And I gave it that title because I knew it wasn't half as good as the double helix, but I hoped it would sell half as many copies. Um, but it didn't. It's, uh, the helix is not the helix of DNA, but it's the Latin name, or the older Latin name, of the snail I've spent for the last 40 years working on, which is called Helix or Sophia nemoralis. And that's a picture of the snail's shells. Now, it's, um, what, it's, working on snails seems to many people rather eccentric. It isn't really. It's a perfectly sensible thing to do. But I was asked once at a dinner party some years ago, which a number of Greek people were at, I was asked out of the blue, what do you call somebody who does research on snails, and the correct word is malacologist, okay? And uh, this caused an alarming response in that half the audience fell laughing uncontrollably to the ground because the root of the word malacologist in Greek is malaka, which means soft and floppy, and I won't go into what it means in <laughs> Greek slang, but actually that's really an, inter an introduction of the way that one can use snake, uh, science and art together because the first piece of artwork I'll show you is um, this thing here, which is a Dali, woman with snail, and Dali, as you will of course know, referred to himself as the great masturbator, and was uh, very much concerned about impotence. And what we've got here is a classic example of impotence hard at work, and Dali showing it as a soft and floppy snail. And I hope that actually I'll persuade you that that, er that is actually uh, a bit of an error when it comes to snails and sex. There's one general rule about working on snails, and in a very minor way, I suppose it applies to me, which is that nobody gets famous until they stop working on snails. And there are a number of extremely good examples of that. In other words, for a snail person, somebody who works on animals with shells rather than snails and slugs, is a conchologist, somebody who studies shells. And this is a, text, a textbook published in the 19th century um, for use in schools, the conchologist's first book. And uh, I'll show you the um, title page, The Conchologist's First Book, Blah, 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 Testasis Malacology, by Edgar Allan Poe. And that was Edgar Allan Poe's first work, was a book about snails. I wonder what happened to him, okay? Um, uh, there he is, Edgar Allan Poe. Another, another person who was very keen on snails, and I wonder what happened to him, is this chap here, Lewis Carroll. And Lewis Carroll was a keen amateur malacologist, in more than one sense of the word, no doubt. Um, and uh, he, many people will know his famous poem um, uh, of the, uh, from uh, Alice in Wonderland, Beware the Jabberwock, my son, the jaws that bite, the claws that catch. Beware the Jubjub bird and shun the frumious bandersnatch. Now, uh, the image of the Bandersnatch in this tenial drawing is, of course, a horrible, great monster, a bit like a dragon. In fact, I discovered almost by mistake um, what the Bandersnatch actually was. Here's a paper on, uh, on snails in German. Uh, so I structure the diversity and structure the polymorphism in Die Bandersnatch. 
Benderschneck, banded snail, Sapir hortensis. Okay, so actually that's tracked down one of the great literary mysteries of what was the Benderschneck. It was in fact a snail. Now there are indeed, of course, many obvious uses of images of snails and mollusks in art, some of which are familiar. Um, here's the Sagrada Familia in, uh, in Barcelona and wonderful uh, cathedral. Um, and you'll see we've got rather fine images of snails crawling up the side there. Um, that's kind of well-known. Another well-known example of a snail is Matisse's uh, uh, cut and paste uh, uh, snail, which is a snaily, not a very snaily snail, but at least it's brightly colored. Um, but very, and they're just images of mollusks, and they're pretty things, there's no question of it. But very often, as so often in art, the use of snails in art does have a symbolic meaning. And some of those symbols are rather startling. Some are fairly obvious. If you go to where I come from in West Wales um, and you go to a graveyard, um, very, very often what you find is there are these plain, these nice slate gravestones going back to the 18th century. And many of them are very finely engraved. It was a thing which became popular in the 18th and 19th century. And among the images you frequently find on gravestones are snails. Why should that be? It seems odd. But actually, it's an image of the resurrection of being born again. Because many snails, and many of you will know this if you've traveled um, in southern Europe and around the Mediterranean, many snails in the summer um, climb away from the ground of the layer of superheated heat, superheated air on the ground, and I'll come back to that question later in the talk. They climb up onto, uh, onto twigs and branches, and they stay there in many thousands of them throughout the summer until the first rains fall in the autumn, whereupon miraculously they're born again and they come back and they come start crawling around. And hence, that's snails um, as resurrection, okay? Um, but there are other religious uh, um, aspects of snail imagery, some which are fairly snarling. Here's something which is in the National Gallery, all right? This is uh, the Francesco del Cossa's Annunciation of the Virgin Mary. And you'll see a rather conventional uh, diagram of Annunciation, a, a very formal. There's the Virgin Mary, there's various angels rushing about, and uh, there's a, obviously a fine building. If you look carefully uh, down about five o'clock there, you'll see a snail crawling across the front of the, of the painting. Why should that be? It's because snails were seen as an image of the virgin birth, okay? And because they had this great, horrible, thick shell around them, it seemed to the, uh, uh, to the uh, clergy of those days that they must reproduce without sex. I can tell you they were dead wrong there. Because they got this enormous sort of um, calcareous condom which they wear, um, then they would actually produce, uh, magically produce offspring without having sex, and hence the image of the snail as, as, as purity. Okay? That isn't true at all, because the sex lives of snails are really quite startling things. There's no question about them. Many of them, not all of them, but many of them are hermaphrodites. Okay? And <clears throat> they're actually cross, rather unusual, they're cross-fertilizing hermaphrodites. Boy-girl meets girl-boy. Okay? And they get together. Now, in that circumstance, if you're a cross-fertilizing hermaphrodite, what you want to be, obviously, is the boy. You want to be the male. You want to impregnate your partner and then beat it as quickly as you can because you're, before your partner decides that he, she wants to impregnate you. Because in other words, what you can do then is you can have all the joy of sex without any of the costs. You can fertilize your partner and you can beat it and you don't have to pay university fees for your children, that kind of stuff. <laughs> um, and they do it in very complicated ways. Um, here's an image which seems odd. 
from a 17th century uh, manuscript, of a snail about to shoot an arrow. Now, why did it, did it want to do that? It wants to do that because it actually does that. Snails um, have things called love darts. They're not really love darts. They're more hate darts. But what they actually do is they fire them at each other. It was originally thought that they fired them at each other, and they're quite substantial things. If you keep snails in a box in the spring, you'll find them uh, the following morning, numbers of them. Um, you fire them at each other, once thought to be a sort of, you know, this is a, a statement of affection, okay? Or I'm giving you a pile of calcium carbonate, which is what the dart is made of, and therefore, you know, I'm worth uh, dallying with. Um, the notion got into uh, art. Here's a Boucher, Cupid and Psyche. No doubt the, the image of Cupid with his arrows, I'm absolutely certain, came from the observation of snails copulating. I'm not that certain, but it'd be nice if it was true. Um, and here's actually um, a uh, snail dart. And what actually happens is that if the dart is dry and, uh, and clean, it looks like this. It looks like an arrow. It looks a bit like an arrow. It's quite big. In human terms, it's probably about that big. So, you know, having that shot into you isn't all that much fun. Uh, but actually, if you look at it uh, in living animals, it's covered with mucus. It's covered with a sort of snotty type of stuff, which nobody really thought very much about. But in fact, it turns out that it, it's got, it contains a hormone. It's a hormone which is a, uh, it, it's a male hormone. It's a hormone which is produced by the male part. Um, and that the female, in this boy-girl meets girl-boy, the female part stores sperm. And that's very common in the animal world. Um, Mammals don't do it, as far as we know, but lots of uh, insects and snails do. Uh, they mate, the female has an, a special organ into which the sperm is taken, and she lets out a bit whenever she feels like it, and she can actually choose what she thinks of, thinks in inverted commas, as the highest quality sperm from this sperm store. So if a male mates with a female, uh, the most of all his sperm will just be taken in and put on, put on one side until somebody else turns up, somebody else possibly better turns up. But what this hormone does, it forces the female to open the door of her sperm store so that the male sperm is then immediately reduced, released into the female reproductive tract. Not many people know that when they talk about Cupid's dart, but that's what Cupid's dart was really for. Okay. Well, that's a general. That's a kind of generalization um, about uh, about uh, snails and odd stories about snails. They go further. Um, many of you. Um, we talked about snails. Let's talk about slugs. Now, slugs are something else. Slugs are completely amazing. All slugs were once snails. Hitler once said, "A slug is a degenerate snail." He also said a toad is a degenerate frog, and he was wrong about the second, but he was right about the first. Slugs are snails who have given up having shells because shells are expensive to make, okay? And they mate. Boy-girl meets girl-boy. And the mating pattern, I cannot bear to describe in detail because it's a bit eye-watering. But here's a common British slug, Limax, uh, whatever it is. Um, and um, this is Charles Darwin. Darwin Lecture Theatre, Darwin's Bunker, I'm speaking from, quoting in his rather good French from Agassiz, quiconque, I won't, I won't do it in French, he who has the, need, who has the uh, chance to look at the, the loves of the slugs can, can have no doubt that the seduction used by the movements and the allure which prepare and accomplish the double embracement of these hermaphrodites, okay? They embrace each other. And you can see these big white things embracing. They're not embracing, they're hitting each other. And the big white things are actually the two penises, all right? And they bash each other madly with penises until one of them stuns the other one into, uh, into, um, into um, <laughs> submission and mates with them. But they go further than that, a thing which we discovered here some years ago, that actually the winner bites off the penis of the other one. 
okay, to stop him from actually uh, using his penis. And that's called apophallation. Uh, P-H-A-L-L-A-T-A-O-N, spiting off of uh, penis. We made, we made up the word. Um, um, and that's kind of weird. But that, too, very strangely, has a resonance in the work in, 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 in art. Here's a famous Goya of Kronos, uh, the, the god Kronos, devouring his children. And what Kronos actually did was to devour his children after having castrated his father. Who was his father? His father was Neptune. And what happened when Neptune was castrated? His testicles were thrown into the sea and they turned into foam. And here we have Botticelli, Venus, emerging from the foam. And that's what the foam was. It was the sperm of, uh, of Neptune. Um, again, a slightly unlikely tie, perhaps, between the world of science and the world of art. However, I shall now stop telling snutty stories, smutty stories, and I shall start talking about snail polymorphism, which is, of course, much, much more interesting. All right? So why work on snails? Well, there are many reasons. They're sluggish, pause for laughter, OK? Um, they're easy to, they're easy to, um, they're easy to, easy to mark, and we'll come back to that. Um, <coughs> they, most of all, though, they're what we call polymorphic, OK? And polymorphism means being different, individual differences. And I started working on these things, I hate to say it, in 1965, a long time ago. Oddly enough, the guy who won the Nobel Prize um, just a couple of days ago, a developmental biologist, uh, gave me my first lecture, not on snails, uh, but uh, um, it was a long time ago. And in those days, lots of people worked on snails, this particular snail. And the reason they did it was they were interested in the central question of evolution, the central question of genetics, which is, why is there so much diversity? <coughs> evolution could not happen unless there was lots of inherited diversity. Charles Darwin's machine depends on that. Darwin's machine, natural selection, consists of inherited differences in the ability to reproduce. That's what it is. Without differences, there could be no evolution. We'd still be sitting in the primeval soup. Okay? We depend on difference. But way back in the 1960s, and indeed, indeed until rather later than that, 68 it actually happened, the first discovery was made here, again, we have to put in by UCL rules of advertising break every 15 minutes, and so that was exactly 15 minutes. That wasn't bad. Um, and in the 60s here at UCL, and what was then the Galton Laboratory, the discovery was made, now banal, but quite startling at the time, that if you took a random sample of proteins from the blood of normal human beings, actually they were medical students, so it's not entirely dependable. Um, if you took a random sample of proteins, of 27 proteins, and you, you put them on a on an apparatus which will separate them according to charge and size, an electrophoresis apparatus, as it's called. Um, to everybody's great astonishment, it turned out that something like 13 of those proteins were variable from person to person. And nobody expected that. The absolute expectation was that if somehow magically, and in those days it was unthinkable, we could read human DNA, we would find that most people from all over the world were pretty much identical to each other with a few obvious minor differences, perhaps in blood groups, skin color, eye color, that kind of stuff. And that was the expectation, but it turned out not to be true. But until that technique became available, and of course the technology now is far, far more sophisticated now that you can sequence an entire genome in a morning, um, until that technique became available, we didn't have that kind of information. There were 
some species, though, some creatures, though, which were visibly variable. You could go out, we bred these up, these are my snail, uh, it's, it's a sample collected um, on the Marlborough Downs in southern England, um, and if you look at them, you'll see an absolute riot of individual differences, and if you do crossing experiments, which we've done, they turn out to be straightforward genetic differences in color, from pale yellow to dark pink or brown, and in number of stripes from zero to five, and various other minor things, okay. And this is just one population. Almost every individual is different from all the others. And what you can do, and we've done it mightily, with hundreds of thousands of snails, um, is to go out and simply go out into nature and count the frequencies of the different variants and how they differ from place to place. And I've spent many years, many happy years, driving with my hairy, um, hippie-type friends all over Europe doing that, and we've collected about half a million of them, okay. And if you can draw maps of the frequencies of the different types. Um, they vary from extremely light-colored to extremely dark-colored, and the picture is really quite clear. Um, here's a, 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 here's a, um, a recent map. Um, you can, there's a striking related tendency populations in the south of Europe to be light-colored and populations in the north of Europe to be dark-colored. And what actually happens is that that's a very striking and uh, significant fit between the frequency of the light-colored variants, pale yellow, let's say, um, and the amount of bright sunshine and temperature. Okay, so the hotter it is, the more light-colored creatures you've got. And we know a lot about that. That's kind of a banal and obvious um, statement, uh, as anybody will find. If you were to sit in shorts on a black painted um, park bench on a sunny day, even in London, you'd stand up pretty smartish because dark objects heat up more rapidly to a higher temperature in the sun than light objects do. It's physics, so it must be true, okay? So that's fine, all right, so that's fine. Now, we spent a lot of time doing that, and that's been done in various creatures, and we know quite a lot about the behavioral implications, and it's all very boring. Um, but actually, we weren't asking, and I think many people weren't asking, the interesting question. And the interesting question isn't, why do populations differ from place to place? as many populations do, as human populations do, of course, in skin color, let's say, or the ability to, to drink milk or to metabolize alcohol. Why do we, we differ from place to place? You can study that quite easily, okay? The more interesting question is, why does there nearly always remain variation, differences within a particular place, within a particular population? For example, if you were to, if you were to, if you were to go to um, southern Europe, uh, I've done most of my recent work in the, in the Pyrenees, where it's often hot and sunny. Um, even in the hottest and sunniest parts of the Pyrenees, way up high, when there's no cover and the sun comes roaring in, and it's really, really, uh, you can get sunstroke up there quite easily. Um, even there, you find mainly light-colored shells, but a few dark ones. I did my undergraduate project on the dunes in Montrose on the east of Scotland. I spent 10 years in Edinburgh. I don't think I saw the sun once in that decade, but certainly on the dunes in Montrose, which is where it's cold and not sunny, you'll find 90% of dark colored ones, but still a few light colored ones. So what's going on? Why do we maintain diversity? And the same is, of course, written large in human genetics. We now know that if you sequence DNA, you find of the 3,000 million base pairs, um, which go to make human DNA, roughly speaking, and there's a lot of DNA in every one of us. In, if any one of you bored by this talk were to rush into Gower Street and to be squashed flat by a number 29 bus, the DNA in your individual body would reach from that damp patch on the pavement, which used to be you, to the moon and back 8,000 times. So there's a lot of DNA in every one of us. Every cell has got two meters of DNA in it. 
3,000 million DNA letters in those two meters. And if you sequence along, about one in a thousand letters from you to the person next to you is likely to be different. And uh, uh, there are various other differences to do with rearranging the order, and deletions of letters and that kind of thing. And we know a lot about it, but we don't know why it's there. That's the interesting question. You can find out to some degree why different places have got different combinations of genes in humans, but why they're still there, we don't know. And the amount of variation in humans and everything else now makes snails pale into insignificance. It's clearly the case that apart from identical twins, and my mother, as it happens, was an identical twin, although I don't think that's when I became a geneticist, apart from identical twins, everybody on Earth is different from everybody else. <coughs> Fair enough. But actually, if you do the sums, uh, the, that amount of variation means that everybody on Earth is different, not only from everybody alive today, but everybody who has been alive in the past or will be alive in the foreseeable many thousands of years' futures. That's pretty different. But even more striking, if you do the sum again, every sperm and every egg ever made in human history is different from all the others. So that's a massive amount of individual difference. And it's surprising to me that there's not more widespread interest in why that difference is there. So after having spent many years mapping these genes across Europe, we decided to start asking the questions about why is the variation in these snails um, actually remain. Well, oddly enough, the idea, my, one of my ideas, came once again from the world of art. Here's a Dutch flower painting. Now, many of you will be familiar with Dutch flower paintings. They're very beautiful, intricate, and wonderful things, worth a huge amount of money. Some very nice ones at the National Gallery. Um, uh, wonderful, beautiful, beautiful pieces. Okay. And people nowadays see them simply as marvelous paintings and something to put in your bank vault and sell and become rich. Okay. But actually, they had a symbolic meaning when they were painted, a lot of them in the 17th century. They were a reminder of mortality. What you have here are a series of beautiful, beautiful flowers. So that tells you that God is good, God has made the, made the world into a wonderful and attractive place. But look more carefully at what happens to flowers. They decay. They get eaten by caterpillars, all right? They get eaten by snails. This is a reminder that nothing will last, that these flowers will decay in a day or so and be eaten by insects and snails and worms and that kind of stuff, and you will decay and be eaten, and be eaten in the same way. And this is one of my favorites. This is about the Um This is the painting. If you look at it more carefully, and I'm not sure how well you can see it here, but if you look there and up there, and I've actually made a... Uh, if you look at the bottom left there, you'll see a snail, one of my snails, all right, um, in the painting. And up there, on the right, just a parallel with it, another one of my snails. They're different from each other. I did think of asking for a NERC research grant to buy lots of Dutch old masters to see if the gene frequencies have changed, but they turned me down as they invariably do. Um, um, but it's a statement of difference, okay. Now, the odd thing is, unless I pointed those snails out at you, you probably wouldn't notice them. You'd have to look pretty hard. And the reason you can't, that you wouldn't notice them, is actually they're very well camouflaged against their background, okay? And that's what I want to go into, the question of the relationship between, um, between uh, variation in the genes of the creatures we're looking at, snail shell colors and the like, and the habitat in which they live, all right? Well, we know that natural selection 
can, through climate, can work on a large scale because of this Euro European thing, I'm telling you. Uh, but snails are also attacked by predators. It's been known for a long time that if you go to, in southern England, uh, you can often see lots of broken shells um, around stones, which have been bashed by, uh, by thrushes and the like. Um, but there, there aren't many snail jokes, but one of them is that one comes from a broken home. Okay? So, um, <laughs> another one is, um, that one's got shell shock, you see. It's a kind of formal kind of <laughs> series of jokes. Um, and for many years, that was thought to be the major process that drove the system of variation. That isn't true. That's actually only a very local thing in southern England. It isn't true anywhere else. But um, it's a, it made us think about camouflage. And of course, camouflage in the animal world Crypsis, as it's known, is a remarkable thing. Here's a, here's a leafy sea dragon, which is a seahorse, against some, um, some uh, seaweed. And you can see it's really remarkably, reasonably well hidden. Okay? So we began to look at this camouflage and this fit between the, the, uh, the scale on which that uh, creature is uh, built and the scale of the background against which it's found. And they turn out to be very closely related to each other. As I said, there are lots of cases of uh, snails coming from a broken home. Uh, here we'll see some ducks doing, doing the job for us. There's a, an example of a, a what's called a thrush stone. But as I said, that's kind of, that's kind of, um, that's kind of a minor phenomenon. Now, of course, Camouflage is used in many other contexts, too. It's widely used in warfare. Here's a famous uh, Edward Wadsworth um, print from 1919 of a ship in dry dock at the end of the First World War. And what we've got here is what's called dazzle camouflage, where you break up the, um, you break up the uh, dimensions of the ship by painting it in stripes, which are rather like the dimensions of the same size, rather than like the dimensions of, let's say, a breaking wave out at sea. And that's very effective. It's, in fact, been adopted exactly by uh, zebras, as we will see here, um, which are concealing themselves with stripes, which turn out to be almost exactly the dimensions of the trees and the bushes and the trunks against which you see them in the wild. It's been picked up further in art. Here we have uh, some Bridget Riley's. And it's clear, what's interesting about Bridget Riley paintings, first of all, she doesn't paint them, of course, which is very particularly interesting. But secondly, they're scaled, always on the same scale. There seems to be some mental statement that's being made that our minds uh, find particular sizes and relationships of size attractive. And they are very beautiful things, without question. Well, that's the kind of argument we needed, we wanted to go into. Well, there, there's a more recent one. There's a Japanese painter who is very, very eccentric, Yayoi Kusama, who does it on a much larger scale where she has these eccentric objects which she puts into a room. And it's really very hard to see them unless you look hard. So what are we, how, how are we going to? do that in snails. Well, one of the many advantages of working on snails is that they only live in national parks. That's kind of a uh, slightly overstatement. But they tend to live in very nice places. And for each of the last 20 summers I've spent, in fact, this summer I only spent a week there. But at least for the last 20 summers, I usually spend at least a month, sometimes more, in the Pyrenees collecting snails. And here's a shot of the Pyrenees, nice and pretty. We work in a place called the Valle de Aran, which is a Spanish uh, valley on the north side of the Pyrenees. And the snails live from about 300 meters above sea level, which is at the bottom of the Pyrenees, to 2,700 meters, um, which is way up at the top. So there's a huge range of habitats in which they live. And they live in structurally and ecologically very different places. Here's one from lowland. It's called Arteus. And you can see the bushes in the front there. Uh, that's covered with snails, all right? Or we can go up to the top, a nice gray, horrible day up at the top. And that uh, plain 
uh, short, short grass, if you go out there on a wet day, there'll be snails crawling all over it. Right? So there's a huge difference in ecology between those two places. And what's interesting is that it's immediately obvious if you collect the animals that there's a big difference in the uh, kind of um, sample you collect. Here's a sample from fairly low down. That's got both light and dark individuals in. Here's a sample from high up, and this is a very old picture I took in the in the 70s, I think, and that's got nearly all light individuals. So there are big differences over a distance of about five or six kilometers. So we began to wonder what that was due to. And it wasn't all that easy to do. We'd spent quite a lot of time learning botany or learning some kind of parody of botany, where we tried to identify the number of species of plant in each place, expecting there'd be far more kinds of plant low down than up on the alpine pastures. In fact, the opposite is true. One of the most diverse habitats of all is a finely cropped high up pasture because there are many, many species of grasses and flowers up there. So that didn't fit. So then we began to think, well, let's think like a snail. All right, let's take a snail's eye view. And here's a snail. If you happen to be a snail, and sometimes on a bad day, I began to think I was turning into one now and again. If you think like a snail and you put yourself at the bottom of a bush or in a in a, in a forest, and you look up, you would see the sky. And you would see something like this. This is a, a fisheye lens sh shooting through a forest canopy. And what you'd see would be lots of patches of dark and light. And there's a whole field called sunfleck ecology, which studies exactly that. And it's tremendously important. It's one of these areas which is hugely important and nobody knows about. UCL certainly doesn't know about it because our plant sciences died about 10 years ago. Um, in, in the medical, they, were, they were eaten by the medical school. Um, but it's enormously important because the amount of sun that gets into a crop determines how fast it grows. So there's a huge amount of interest in, in, uh, in breeding crops of different shapes and sizes so that you can maximize the amount of solar input. And there's all kinds of extremely sophisticated machinery, electronic apparatus, which will tell you about the patchiness, the amount of sun that comes in, how, how broken up it is. Um, and you can buy these things, but they're expensive. And of course, we didn't have any money, so we had to think about it, all right? So we defined, began to define, how would, if I was a snail, how would I work out how patchy the uh, environment is in terms of sun flex and how much sun is coming in and affecting me? Because we know that snails are very susceptible to being overheated, uh, like most creatures, like us. They live on the edge of a thermal cliff. If our temperature goes up by five, three degrees Celsius, you're ill. If a snail's temperature goes up three degrees higher than air temperature on a hot day, it's dead. So it has to be very, very careful about how much it, um, it, uh, solar energy it absorbs. Well, these machines were expensive, so we couldn't buy them. So we had to think. And after a bit of thought, I came up with a technique, which is given the rather eccentric name of Jones's Balls. Um, it involved taking a series of um, small plastic spheres um, and just going to a, very, very, to a series of uh, habitats and throwing these spheres in to a one meter square and then using a UCL satellite, otherwise known as a folding ladder, defining oneself as the sun and simply climbing, climbing up this ladder from the point of sunrise all the way around to the point of sunset and counting how many of these spheres you could see. Now, in a place like this, which has got very short vegetation, you probably get figures like 3, 3, 4, 7, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 4, 7, 3, 2, say, because you can see most of them. If you go to a much more, uh, into a more um, vegetational kind of place, you'll see fewer. And if you go to a place with a lot more vegetation, you'll see fewer again. So 
what we first did was to say, okay, is there any relationship between the extent of variation in the population and the amount of diversity in the uh, patchiness of light and the extent to which the vegetation cuts it off? And the answer is yes. Um, here we have the amount of uh, genetic variation versus the thermal complexity, as I call it, of the habitat. All right. So that's fine. But what are we actually measuring? How do the snails experience it? Well, we try to ask them, but we don't speak snail particularly well. So after a bit of um, puzzling, and I, uh, I did this some years ago now, we came up with a method of measuring the extent to which each individual animal was exposed to sunlight. Um, and it sounds eccentric, but it is in fact true. We started off with gene manipulation. And by gene manipulation, I mean we took, and we're talking early 70s here, mid-70s. Uh, that means in those days, everybody in this room would have been wearing blue jeans, okay? And they would be carefully faded, all right? Um, and I thought, hang on, those jeans are faded. Why have they faded? Because the sun has faded the cloth. So I thought, oh, we'll cut out little squares of cloth and we'll stick them onto snails, gene manipulation, and we'll see whether they fade, all right? And the answer is it didn't bloody well work. It, um, they came off, basically. But then I thought, aha, just a minute, what is the dye which they put in these genes? And I found out what it was, and it's a, it's a, it's a commercial dye which fades. So we had a little techno piece of te technique um, where we took a, uh, this blue dye, we mixed it with yellow paint to make a green paint, okay? And if you expose that green paint to, to sunlight, it fades to yellow. Now let me just, and it is, here we go. Um, this is um, the way it works. Here we've got two snails, which have been in, um, in, uh, in the sun for different amounts of time, in the same population. You see the one on the left has scarcely faded at all. The one on the right has faded more. We can compare it, and this is allowed, the colors are lousy on this, but it does work. Um, you can compare it against the scale, and you can measure how much time each individual animal has spent in sunlight over a month or so. Now, we did a lot of work on this. This is uh, an aerial shot of the University College London Snail Ranch at uh, Whiteham Wood in Oxford, which is 101 meter square, um, one meter circular um, uh, cages into which we put snails, and we did various things with the paint, um, and we found, uh, indeed, they vary in the way they behave. If you go back to the, uh, to the balls experiment, what we did was to take these little circular washers, which is what they are, we call them spiders, and we put the spiders in the places where the balls had fallen, in these pictures of vegetation, came back after a day, um, and we found that in some places they'd all gone to yellow, in some places they were patchy green and yellow, and if we look at the relationship between the habitat patchiness and the amount of variation, it, again, there's a striking fit between the two. So somehow, this habitat patchiness is determining the amount of diversity in the population. Well, why should that be? It turns out to, be, to depend on something which is becoming very important in understanding genetics and evolution, which is differences in individual behavior. And small differences in behavior um, have a huge effect on, sna on snails, on humans, on everything else. And what we found, indeed, with the snail ranch is that if we take light and dark-colored animals and we put them in the snail ranch and we come back after two months in the summer, there's a big difference in the extent to which the unbanded, that's the light-colored individuals, have been exposed to sunlight versus the bandits. We can actually do some phenotype manipulation by painting them black and white, 
We can take light-colored ones and paint them black and dark-colored ones and paint them white, put this uh, paint on them, and we can ask again what happens. They reverse their behavior. We did this in Spain, and we, the Spaniards, uh, an amiable lot, tend to, um, tend to pick these things up and eat them. They cook them. And there was one old lady who was doing it who picked up a pile of black ones, and she crossed herself and went, ran away. Um, <laughs> but you can reverse their behavior, and that's what happens is you reverse their behavior. Okay. So what we've got here is an ability of individual animals to choose the patch, sunny or dark, in which they're relatively fit. And they track it very, very carefully. And the more complicated the habitat, the more effective that it is in a way of maintaining polymorphism. And that fits between, um, between um, uh, habitat complexity and genetic complexity is now beginning to suggest that actually that's of, of, of general importance. For example, if you look at the variation in diet of different primates, the more variation there is in their diet, the more variation there also is in their genes, particularly in the genes that give taste and smell. So this may be a more, a more general phenomenon than people realize. However, um, there is, uh, naturally, we need, we've been talking, and when we talk about snails and art, uh, we've been talking largely about old and rather beautiful artworks. Modern artworks are, of course, much more challenging. Two or three years ago, more now, four years ago, I was written to out of the blue by somebody who I didn't know, was an artist, a guy called Finley Taylor, who's a printmaker at Goldsmiths College, um, as it then was, and he wanted to do an artistic experiment. And uh, what he did was to take a copy of Charles Darwin's Origin of Species, okay, um, and put it in the garden for several months, um, and uh, a very wet summer, and a copy of my attempt to rewrite the Origin of Species, 1909, um, which was called Almost Like a Whale. And the artwork was to see what the snails preferred to eat. And, <laughs> and I have to tell you, somewhat to my disappointment, they found the origin on the right much more palatable than my book on the left. Um, but as I've killed off probably half a million of the animals in my career, I suppose they're entitled to get their own back. I shall stop there. Thank you.